Hello and welcome to Battlecast. Today we're recounting the first blood-soaked rebellion of both the Indibeli and the Mashona nations. It's a story of witchcraft and massacre, murdered children and brutal warfare. In tonight's episode, my voice will conjure up lines of thousands of Indibeli warriors sweeping across the plateau. My audio waves will send down settler houses in crackling flames, send millionaires stalking African warriors, send blood flowing through the tan bush. In my little voice box are thousands of deaths. Men blown apart by dynamite, the meaty chunks of their bodies splattering across stone cave walls like Jackson Pollock paintings. Here, in this wind passing through my teeth, is the story of entire cultures and religions blotted out from the open sun and driven underground, literally. It's muti and witchcraft, and it's guns and applied science colliding in the tan hills and stony outcrops of Rhodesia. It's men reduced to liquefied chunky marinara as the hissing fuse ignites the shrapnel-infused bombs. A story that's never been told before on the internet. It's the story of what the Africans called the first Chimaringa and what the settlers called the second Matabili War. But before we get into that, I've got to thank Ryder from Regina, Canada for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. I also need to thank Chris from Boston. And I've also got to thank Jay and Slick from Fort Collins, Colorado, and all the humanitarian philanthropists of the Devil's Own Outlaws Biker Club who like to listen to the show while enjoying libations with their gentlemen's discussion and dinner group. This beer is for Ryder and all the contingent faculty out there. I know what you're going through. But now, blood, death, corporeal deconstruction. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know what's coming. I'll paint the audio waves emanating from your speakers red. When you're drinking, when you're drinking, the show looks good to you. When you're drinking, all right, so if you remember from last month, at the end of the first Matabili War, the proud Indibeli nation was defeated. Their king, Lobengula, was driven into exile where he died, and European settlement into Rhodesia continued unabated. Here's how Richard Baker describes the fall of the Indibeli nation in rough language that few of us, including myself, would use today and of which I certainly cannot personally approve, so you can take your finger off that complaining button. But here's the quote. Quote, Rhodes forced a war on King Lobengula, which he could only have avoided at the price of abandoning half his kingdom. The Indibeli state was cruel and barbarous. Its passing needs little regret. No one knows their abominable history, wrote veteran African expert scout and warrior Frederick Selou, and can pity them or lament their downfall. They've been paid back in their own coin. But in the same letter, Selu observed, So you see the campaign is virtually over, and the fair-haired descendants of the northern Viking pirates are in possession of the great king's crawl, end quote. This was the reality under all the high-sounding talk sent telegraph back to England at the time. It was a war of conquest, and conquest henceforth constituted the title deeds of the European both in Mashona land and Matabili land. It is true that the Shona chiefs in no way recognized this until after the rebellion we're going to discuss today. Lawyers and jurists back in London might argue the fine points of how the nation of Rhodesia came to exist and what international law its existence was grounded in, but on the ground, in concrete reality across hundreds of square miles of Africa, the land and the possessions of the Indibeli and the Shona were at the mercy of the Europeans, just as the land and possessions of the Anglo-Saxons had been at the mercy of the Normans after the conquest of England, which we recounted in episode two of Battlecast. Now I need to go ahead and tell you about the way Rhodesia got its name. The story goes like this. Rhodes promptly set about unifying Mashona land and Matabili land, forming the two territories into one colony. The new colony was called Rhodesia, a name that had begun as a play on Rhodes' personal power in newspapers reporting on the conquest of Matabili land. 
In other words, it was like a meme about Rhodes' insatiable greed and unmitigated power. But regular people actually liked the name, and so the name stuck. It became the most popular name for the area. Regular everyday settlers just started calling the colony Rhodesia, and consequently, even though Rhodes personally didn't like the name, he preferred Zambesia or Charterland, the colony became known as Rhodesia. Now, what happened next in Rhodesia was almost, but not quite, unique in colonial African history. For one thing, there were more Europeans on the ground in Rhodesia than other African colonies because the climate was suitable for them and consequently many flooded into the country. And whereas in most colonies, there were few Europeans to disrupt traditional social patterns of the indigenous Africans, in Rhodesia, vast amounts of labor were needed in order to foster economic development. Now this development, along with the introduction of British-style government rules and infrastructure, had profound effects on traditional African cultures and living patterns. Now the same impact was inadvertently imposed on southern Vietnam by the presence of hundreds of thousands of Americans during the Vietnam War. The presence of so many wealthy foreigners creates new desires and wants in the indigenous populations. They see the luxuries of the colonist areas. Franz Fanon is a master at describing this process, and they work for wages with which they purchase consumer goods. Now the indigenous Africans were taxed. So even if they wanted to stay in, in their traditional cultures, in their crawls, they couldn't. And highways and railroads began to connect villages and regions that for years had never been connected. The native village, which had once filled a person's entire world, is suddenly reduced in size, much the way modern astronomers view the Earth. And at the top of the entire southern African region, ruling over a vast collection of African tribes and polyglot European societies was Cecil Rhodes, one of the most powerful men on the planet, a modern historian explains. Rhodes was now at the pinnacle of his power, prime minister of the Cape Colony, governor of both Mashonaland and Matabeleland in Rhodesia, but a governor backed by financial resources such as no normal colonial governor ever possessed, admired in England. He dominated the whole of southern Africa. Already, after the first Matabele War, he set his eye on the conquest of the Afrikaner Republic of the Transvaal, the last great impediment to his enormous ambitions. He therefore viewed his newly won domain less as an area in which to build a stable colonial system then as a base for future operations to overthrow Creer and build a British-ruled region from the Cape Colony all the way to Cairo, clear across the continent of Africa. Consequently, he spent a minimum amount of money on police and administration in Rhodesia. He considered the money needed for more exciting and less boring purposes. Government should be left as far as possible to the European settlers. By this decision, much of the future course of Rhodesian history was shaped. As Rhodes saw it, the important task after the Matabele War was to keep the settlers sweet. Keeping the settlers happy meant keeping the liberal do-gooders in London out. End quote. And for the next three years... The new colony was ruled on the cheap. Unscrupulous native police mistreated their African brothers. European adventurers likewise misused their laborers. Cattle were taken from both Shona and Indibeli in order to pay for the cost of the recent war that I recounted in last month's episode and the upkeep of the colony, which at the same time settlers paid little taxes to upkeep. But worst of all was the Rhodesian government's policy on land. Within a few months of the victory over Lobangula, almost all the traditional grazing grounds of the Indibeli had been given away. All of the 948 European volunteers who fought in the first Matabele War were given massive farms, averaging more than 6,000 acres each. By 1899, 15.7 million acres had been either given or sold to Europeans in both Mashonaland and Matabele land. Most of the volunteers who received grants did not settle on them, however. Rather, they sold their property to companies or individual speculators, and the men did not even get paid for that much of their property grants, so they didn't make much money off the grants they received. A man who sold his land, his cattle loot, and gold claims at the end of October 1894 received about 140 pounds, which is worth about 18,000 pounds today, or $24,000. By 1899, two-thirds of the original volunteers had sold out. What was worse? 
was the native tribes were allocated reserves that were both remote and almost waterless. One colonial administrator wrote that Indebelli regarded the reserves more as cemeteries than homes. Most Africans refused to move to the reserves. The result was a large number of Africans stayed where they were and, quote, squatted on land that was technically now owned by Europeans. You can see the trouble already brewing, can't you? The Africans built lives where they were, but those lives could always be upended at any moment. They were renters, not owners of the land they occupied, and they could be removed whenever the landlord wanted them gone. For many years, most of these so-called squatters weren't bothered, but the change in status for the proud Ndebele warriors must have been devastating. But land issues weren't the only problem in the confrontation between indigenous and European ways. The two groups soon clashed over cattle. Now, I can't stress the importance of cattle in 1890s Bantu culture. Cattle was tied up with the entire fabric of the Matabili nation. Philip Mason explains, In African customs, the cattle were one of the strands that bound the people together. The way cattle were held and distributed contributed to the royal dominion, the cult of the ancestors, and the stability of the marriage institution, end quote. The Europeans promptly overturned this essential foundation of the Indebelli people. Of course, the Indebelli had agreed to relinquish King Lobengula's massive herd of cattle as a form of reparations when they made peace with Rhodes and the settlers. However, the Europeans agreed not to confiscate the cattle, which were held in private hands. Well, in practice, the distinction between public royal cattle and private cattle was almost impossible to maintain, and many Europeans abused their position by simply raiding or trading for the cattle on their own initiative. Now, in the chaos of war, many cattle were not held by their original owners and so were sold at best by caretakers and at worst by thieves. In the end, two years after the war, the Indebelli were left with only about one-fifth of the original cattle. It was a massive blow, not only to their money, but to their way of life, almost to their self-esteem. Still another problem in the mid-1890s was the European administration of African areas and African peoples. The settlers recruited their African police from the former oppressed tribes who now lorded over the proud Ndebele, who, if you remember, were descended from Zulu warriors. Many of these former subject peoples had scores to settle with the Indibeli, and they horribly abused their positions, going so far as to forcibly recruit labor and horribly mistreat Indibeli women of the villages they descended upon. And by mistreat, I mean they did things to them I can't describe in this podcast without getting canceled. And so the Europeans in Rhodesia were sitting on a time bomb, a bomb that could blow at any moment. A modern historian provides this excellent summary, quote, The situation was intolerable for a number of reasons, but the most important reason was much of the military system of the Indebelli remained intact. Many Indebelli had secretly retained their weapons at the end of the war, and to this military aristocracy the new regime caused intense resentment. One reason was the European demand for labor. The essence of this was to pull the African into the cash economy, voluntarily if possible, involuntarily, if necessary. The Haida police were much involved in this process. To the European prospector, all African labor was the same. A major fault was the Europeans' propensity to treat Africans as all equivalent. It caused immense resentment to force the trained elite warriors of the Ndebele to work as common miners, intermixed indiscriminately with their former subject nations. The situation was very similar in the lands of the Shona, but there was a key difference in the backgrounds of the two peoples. Quote. The Shona, who, if you remember, were the former subject tribes of the Indibeli, had never made a peace treaty with the settlers. They considered their relations to the Europeans to be unchanged. To be sure, they were thankful to be free from Indibeli rule, but they did not ipso facto consider themselves under settler rule either. But the settlers simply asserted their rule over the Shona as a consequence of their defeat of the Indibeli, who had formerly ruled over the Shona. What was worse is the settlers sent police careening through Mashona land, forcibly recruiting laborers, and worse still, small groups of these African troopers violated the chastity of Shona women they found alone. These men were not punished, 
All right, so the guys who did this got away with it. And of course, the Shona complained to anyone who would listen, especially missionaries. But when complaints reached colony leaders, the offenders could not be found. And truth be told, many colonial authorities didn't seem too interested in finding the rapist in any case. I can tell you honestly, this behavior is a blot on the history of Britain and the history of the West. And if you disagree, you need to examine your own heart. The golden rule delivered from both God and man's reason clearly states you need to treat others the way you want to be treated, and the historical record unequivocally demonstrates that the occupying police forces in Rhodesia consistently violated this rule. As Carl Schmidt notes, protecto ergo obligo, protection therefore obligation. The Africans had rights that the Europeans, as their rulers, were obliged to protect, but they did not do so. And, because of this, tens of thousands of people, including European and African women and children, would die as a consequence. I should note that after an entire year of this behavior, the chief police commissioner took strong steps to completely stop the European raids and abuse of Africans. And by European, I mean usually police raids. So these are other Africans raiding the Indabeli and the Mashona living areas. However, the damage was already done. Moreover, the coerced recruitment of African labor continued, which caused much resentment, especially among the warriors of the Indabeli. As often happened in British colonies, the Europeans passed hut taxes, which were sort of like property taxes. The taxes were very small, but they forced Africans into European labor. In other words, the hut tax forced Africans to change their customary way of life, by working for European institutions. And so, to summarize, between 1893 and 1895, the worst abuses in the settler system were stopped. But at the same time, many aggravations continued. All of these many problems and abuses I've laboriously detailed combined to produce what Africans called the first Chimaringa, the first uprising. Now, the Bush War, which I'm going to tell you about next month, is called the second uprising or the second Chimaringa. So there's a continuity there. Anyway, soon the endless tan felt would be painted red. Soon blood would flow, and this is how it happened. A number of unlucky events sparked off the rebellion in Rhodesia. Ever since the European victory, there had been a series of disastrous droughts, which suggested to the Africans that the newcomers did not know how to make peace with the land, as one contemporary African actually described it. What he meant was that the land itself seemed to reject European rule. There were continuous and incessant plagues of a locust, a clear sign of European incompetence. Finally, a plague came over the cattle throughout the entire country. Lord Grey, a key administrator of Rhodesia, described the plague like this, quote, All the plagues of Egypt have tumbled at once upon this unhappy country. Drought, locusts, failure of crops, total annihilation of the cattle by the plague, no milk, no beef, but lots of lovely smells from the dead cattle, end quote. The land literally stank from the legions of rotting bovine. Almost all the primary sources note the horrible smell which pervaded the land. Rhodesia literally stank of putrescent death. The cattle were so infected with disease that vultures, who normally would have deconstructed the carcasses, avoided them. And so the bodies were left to disgustingly melt all across the land. The decomposing landscape resembled Picasso's famous Guernica painting as cows' bodies liquefied into one another. The situation was made worse by the decision to shoot thousands of healthy cattle in order to prevent the infection from spreading. This action was literally viewed as criminal by native Africans. The Europeans were actually slaughtering healthy animals. For the Africans, this was totally unforgivable. I want you to imagine the government sending disrespectful police to your bank and burning your money in front of you. That's what the massacre of the Bantu livestock was like for the Africans who witnessed it. By 1897, there were less than 14,000 head of cattle in African possession in the whole of Rhodesia. Four years earlier, there had been over 200,000 in Matabili land alone possessed by Africans. The wealth of two nations left putrefying in the open feld. Then, in late 1895, Jameson led his disastrous raid into the Boer Republic of Transvaal, which was promptly crushed by the Boers. I outlined this raid in episode 36 on the Boer War. 
Now, the key thing in our story today is Jameson had brought most of the soldiers and police from Rhodesia with him, and now they were all languishing in board jails. In early 1896, there were only 48, 48 European mounted policemen who were expected to rule over hundreds of thousands of disgruntled and armed natives. A child could see the Europeans were weak, and the Africans saw, and the Africans planned. The uprising began on March 20th, 1896. It started small like these things often do. A detachment of African police were patrolling near Ungashwini. When they were attacked and two of the African policemen were killed, this was nothing, just the taster they give you in tourist traps to try to get you to buy dinner. The full feast of pain was three days away. On March 23rd, 1896, the full cup of wrath was unleashed on the Europeans of Rhodesia. Every one was affected. I want you to imagine everyone on your street trying to kill you and your family. That's what it was like for the settlers. Now, when I read about the uprising, it reminded me of the first Matrix movie where seemingly content people can suddenly transform into hardened veterans trying to murder you in a split second. That is precisely what the rebellion was like. I'm going to run through a list of massacres in a minute, but I want you to keep in mind these conflicts and bloodbaths are happening all over the country at the same time, and this is just a small sampling. I can multiply these examples the way elite Americans use women. They just endlessly go through them. Now, before I get into these murders, I want to go back to your neighborhood analogy I told you about before. All right, so you're thinking about everyone in your neighborhood not only trying to kill you, but also trying to torture you and your family before they kill you in the most horrible way imaginable. And not only that, but I want you to view your dead body as if it were on a screen in a sordid Italian giallo film, cut up and disemboweled, your corpse abused while scores of jeering spectators take in the scene. See yourself cut open, your own face bashed in, your own little daughters abused in ways that would get me banned from iTunes if I dared to describe them. See your own intestines stringing out like blood-dripping Christmas lights disentangled from one end of a dirt road to another while a jeering crowd gyrates around your corpse and then after your body and the bodies of your sisters and children are tortured they're left for the wild animals to consume watch the screen of your mind and see the crows pecking out the juicy orb of your own eyeball see the wild tan rhodesian dogs fleck with the detritus of your own innards as they devour your corpse and the corpses of all you hold dear that's what happened to the colonists of rhodesia during the months of March and April, approximately 144 Europeans were killed. Many hundreds more were wounded, and the entire population was shaken to their core. Now I'll let the people who lived through the uprising describe the carnival show of death. From March 23rd to March 30th, the hunt for settlers was almost unhindered. One eyewitness noted, quote, by the end of March 30th, not a European was alive in the outlying districts of Matabili land. They had all been wiped out, end quote. Frederick Selu, the renowned adventurer, was there. He was a man of extensive learning, almost a humanist, the sort of a humanist who knew he was being bad when he was settling Rhodesia. But when he heard the stories of atrocities, all of his liberalism was choked out of him. He became a man of pure, unalloyed hatred. He would later write, the atrocity tales of the uprising filled me with indignation and excited in me a desire for vengeance that could only be fulfilled by a personal and active participation in the killings of the murderers, end quote. He later described a murdered Afrikaner family numbering 11 people, including women and children, this way. By the way, when I quote contemporary accounts on this show and in future shows, I promise you it doesn't mean I agree or like the views I'm quoting. But these first-person accounts help us understand the extreme history of Rhodesia in Zimbabwe, the deep-seated mistrust that poisoned negotiations 70 years later and embedded a culture of violence in all the Zimbabwean people. So these quotes help us understand the future history of Rhodesia in the deep-seated animosity between the various people groups who live there. Anyway, here's the quote, quote, I went down to the scene of the massacre of the Forey family early in the morning and found the remains of four people, a woman and three children. The murderers had used axes and heavy limbs to shatter the skulls of these poor people. 
The remains had been much pulled about by dogs or jackals, but the long fair hair of the young Afrikaner girls was still intact, and it is needless to say that these blood-stained shocks of yellow hair awoke the most bitter wrath in the hearts of all who looked upon them, Englishmen and Afrikaner alike, and we all vowed a pitiless vengeance against the whole indebelly race, end quote. Now, before I recount the European counterattack, I want to describe the rebellion. As we've seen in numerous servile rebellions in the Western Hemisphere, the rebellion was first inspired by native religious leaders and second, composed of many different large groupings of rebels. There were two main Indebelli factions in the Rising and also a simultaneous uprising by the Shona, who, if you remember, were the former subject tribes of the Indebelli. Now, you may have thought that the Shona would have welcomed the Europeans as a way to cast off Indebelli rule, which is very harsh. This was the case, for example, when Cortes invaded Mexico. Subject peoples supported Cortes, but there was a key uniqueness about the Indebelli and the Shona. They shared the same religion, and this religion united them in their rebellion against the Europeans. A historian explains, quote, what was little understood at the time was the role played by the priest of Mawari, the supreme being. Now, this cult of a god who sent oracles was one of two ancient Shona religious systems, the other being that of the spirit mediums. Now, both of these religious systems were practiced by the same people at the same time. The difference was that the priests of the Mawari spoke directly on his behalf, whereas in the spirit medium cult, the message came through the spirit mediums, who, when in a trance, were supposed to be possessed by the spirits of their ancestors and were able to speak speak with their voices. The Indebelli adopted these religious customs of their subject tribes and thus formed a unity between the two groups. Now one of the chief instigators of the rebellion was the priest and former slave of the Indebali named Mkwati at the shrine of Tabazika Mambo. Mkwati acquired great prestige among the Africans in Rhodesia. He had two important allies, his wife, who was also credited with magical powers, and another wonder worker named Siginyamantashi. The cult, therefore, was a major factor in cementing an alliance between the many different African groups in Rhodesia who were united only in their hatred for all things European. By stirring up millenarian dreams and reviving atavistic memories, the cult contributed much to the fanatical zeal which animated the revolt." End quote. However, I want to stress the groups were not strongly led or united. For example... The uprising in Mashonaland occurred three months after the rebellion by the Indebelli and was consequently much less of a problem for the settlers. Now, as it happened, after news of the initial uprising, Europeans in the surrounding countryside were forced to abandon their outlying settlements and they fell back on four main strong points, Bulawayo, Guelo, Bilingue, and Mangue. But the epicenter of European defense and consequent African attack was Bulawayo, the former capital of Lobengula's Mashona territory. Outside of these fortified centers, death was everywhere for the Europeans. Frederick Selu was an eyewitness to the rebellion. From the start, he led a number of small mounted patrols which sought to keep first the Indebelli off balance and second to rescue any Europeans who were cut off. This is how he describes the outbreak of the rebellion. Quote, we rode up to a trading station called Elkin Store. It was here that the first murders were committed. On Monday, March 23rd, seven Europeans and two colonial natives were murdered there. Among the murdered men was Mr. Bentley, the native commissioner, who was shot or stabbed from behind while sitting in his hut writing, the date above his last words he ever wrote being March 23rd. Mr. Edkins and three other European men, together with their colonial servants and cook, were killed in and around the store. The corpses of two of the poor fellows were found by a relief party four days after the massacre. A colonial native was also discovered still living, though terribly injured. He had evidently been left for dead by the Indebelli, and besides the wounds which they had inflicted on him in order to kill him, they had slit his mouth open from ear to ear like some malevolent French clown. The bodies of the two Europeans had been mutilated, and dry grass had been heaped up and burnt over the faces of the dead, possibly with the idea of destroying their identity. Their charred faces looked like meat, which has been grilled for too long. A crust of ash had formed across it, and yet their white-teethed mouths still grimaced at us like a boxer about to start a fifth round of strenuous fight. 
I accompanied a patrol to Cunningham's farm on Tuesday morning, March 24th. On arrival there, I saw eight dead bodies lying on the ground about 20 yards from the homestead. We made an examination and saw that the deceased persons had been murdered by means of war clubs and battle axes. The ground was covered with native footprints, and there were broken clubs lying about. Among the bodies, I identified three children of Mr. Cunningham Sr. The deceased persons appeared to have been killed inside the house and afterwards dragged out and thrown outside in the positions in which we found them. Young Cunningham, aged about 14 years, was still alive when we arrived but unconscious and died immediately after our arrival. At a distance of a few miles from the Cunningham's farm was a mining property belonging to the Nelly Reef Development Company. At about a quarter to six on the evening of Monday, March 23rd, Mr. Maddox and two miners named Hawking and Hosking were sitting smoking outside their huts just before dinner when some 15 natives came up armed with war clubs and battle axes. Suddenly a call rent the air. Chai! Strike! An eyewitness picks up the story. A number of natives joined those who were with us, and the leader then struck a European on the head with a war club. I immediately retired into my hut for my revolver. When I came back, three natives were hitting Hawking with clubs and axes. With each blow, his face became more disfigured, turning from a human visage into a wet Italian pasta dish. I fired a shot and dropped one man, and just as I had fired my second shot, I received a blow on my head. Hawking then managed to get into the hut, whereupon the natives cleared off. Hawking and I then went to Maddox, but found him dead. We retired into an iron storehouse at which the natives fired a shot. The bullet passed inside through the iron, which caused us to retire again to the hut. By this time, it was growing dark, so the two wounded miners, fearing that the natives would soon return and find the hut, crept out, and getting in the long grass, made their escape to Cunningham's store, where they found safety. On the morning of Tuesday, March 24th, a miner named O'Connor was making lunch when he decided to take a break. He had been sitting smoking a few minutes when he was suddenly startled by the loud and angry barking of two dogs just outside his hut. The angry condition of the dogs was so unusual, said O'Connor, that I thought there was a lion in the camp. Jumping up, he ran to the door of the hut, only to find an African standing just on one side of the entrance, with a musket pointed towards him in his hands. For an instant, said O'Connor, I was paralyzed and retreated back into the hut, the door of which was immediately afterwards blocked by a crowd of Africans, all armed with heavy war clubs. Then, seeing that they had come to murder me, I became mad and rushed in amongst them. I succeeded in wrestling two war clubs from them, and with these I fought desperately, always making my way towards the mouth of the number one mine shaft, which was something over 100 yards from my hut. I was repeatedly knocked down, and heavy blows were continually rained upon me, but now, on my knees, again on my feet, and sometimes rolling, I got to the mouth of the shaft with the remains of two broken war sticks in my hands. Now, O'Connor was fired on more than once, and just as he fell at the mouth of the shaft, he was fired on for the last time. Then O'Connor rolled down the shaft like a soccer ball. That's actually in the primary source. Landing at the bottom of the shaft, the helpless miner was at once attacked by his own workers, the men he had led for a few months, ten in number, who had been working in the tunnel one minute before the attack. These men fell upon him with hammers and drills, O'Connor defending himself as best he could with stones, and finally driving them all, as he thought, up the shaft. After the terrible punishment he had received, which included thirteen scalp wounds, one of which had broken his skull above the left temple, heavy blows with a hammer on each cheekbone and bruises and contusions all over the body, it may be wondered how O'Connor managed to retain his senses. Believing that all his assailants had left the mine, he tried to find a place to hide at a spot some halfway up the incline where a vertical shaft had been cut into the wall. Here the shafts cut through some old workings which formed a recess into which O'Connor crept like a kindergartner trying to hide from his playmates. Just as he was about to avail himself of the hiding place, an African who, during the last fight, must have run back down the tunnel, rushed past him up the inclined shaft. This man must have told the rest of the would-be murderers where the European was hiding, for shortly afterwards several natives came down the shaft, some with lighted candles and four with guns. Two of these men O'Connor recognized as workers who had been working for him for over a year. They had been in the employ of the mine for nearly 18 months, and as they were both good shots, they had often been sent out with the only two rifles in camp to shoot game for the sake of meat. After months, 
The miners had trusted them so much, the rifles had been left entirely in their possession, but now they were among the first to volunteer to kill their employer when he needed them most. When O'Connor recognized his own trusted men among his assailants, he spoke out to them, asking what harm he had done them and why they wished to kill him, to which they answered, We're going to kill you and all the Europeans in the country. However, although their would-be victim could see them, they could not see him and seemed afraid to advance their heads into the recess where O'Connor lay hidden, as they would have to do in order to shoot him for fear he probably had a rock that could knock their heads off. During this time, the Africans at the top of the shaft kept calling down to those below with the guns, What are you doing? Why don't you shoot the Buana? But still the Africans lacked the courage to creep into the recess and finish their victim. Suddenly there was a commotion at the top of the mine and shouts of, Amikawa! Amikawa! Europeans! More have come! And the four men with guns, together with those who were holding the candles, ran up the shaft, leaving O'Connor once more alone. This gave him a few minutes respite and enabled him to gain the shelter of another hiding place where he thought he would be more secure from the guns of his enemies. This was a spot about halfway down the tunnel where some loose ground had fallen in. It rendered a certain amount of wooden reinforcements of the mine shaft necessary. Here, behind some boulders, O'Connor took refuge. But his enemies, having recovered from their alarm and again come down the mine with candles, soon found out, probably by his tracks, where he had hidden. And now the fruits of O'Connor's own teaching were used for his own destruction. For some of the men, he had trained himself through two charges of dynamite with short hissing fuses into his hiding place. Then the Africans all ran out of the mine, and they did not return, thinking probably they had blown O'Connor to pieces. Having only seen the wonderful effects of the dynamite, when employed for blasting rocks and exploded at the bottom of a hole drilled deep into solid stone, they did not know that a loose charge exploded on the surface of the ground would have comparatively little effect. Consequently, O'Connor remained uninjured in the shelter of the boulder behind which he lay. Shortly after the explosion, he thinks he must have become unconscious and remained so for many hours. When he came to himself, hearing no sound of his enemies, he crept from his hiding place like a golem and made his way up the inclined shaft. A glance showed him that his camp had been destroyed and all the huts burned down, but he could see no Africans anywhere. He then made his way to an old mining camp from which he could look down on the police station. In the brilliant moonlight, he saw the huts still standing, but there was no life or movement near the station and no lights or fires burning and therefore believed the Europeans had been murdered. Then he went down to the stream, which ran below the police camp in Edkin's store, and as he expressed it, he wallowed in the stream like a pig. Then the unfortunate man finally recognized his dreadful position. All hope of help from his immediate neighbors was gone, for they were all bloating and the African son had already fled for their own lives, while he was the only European amongst an entire nation that was actively seeking to kill him. But his stout Irish heart never wavered, and weakened as he was by loss of blood, he set out to the northwest towards Bulawayo. Eventually, O'Connor made his way to safety and told his story to Salu, and now I'm telling it to you 125 years later. Many more colonists weren't so lucky. People were being killed everywhere. Every settler had a family member or acquaintance who died. The murdered were from all over the Western world. There were Swedish people, Greeks, Afrikaners, Irish, Scottish. They all joined their English fellow colonists in death. The Africans had learned from their previous conflicts with Europeans, and now they avoided set-piece battles in the open with large concentrations of settlers, preferring instead to snipe their enemies from concealed positions in dense bush. They attacked isolated farms and used their massive numerical superiority to their advantage. And if you remember from the episode on the Boer War, many of the European military forces were still rotting in Boer jails after the disastrous attempt by Rose to overthrow the Afrikaner republics during the Jameson Raid. Consequently, most of the fighting men, as I told you before, were out of the country when the Africans rebelled. Moreover, the local African police were viewed as unreliable and disarmed, but not before 200 of them went over to the enemy, carrying their modern firearms and equipment with them. But worst of all was the lack of proper equipment and horses. There were few cannons and machine guns available in the main supply depot at Bulawayo, and there were only 600 modern rifles. No matter how you sliced it, in the first few months of the rebellion, it was going to be touch and go for the colonists. Still, the settlers did what they could. They immediately set about constructing massive defenses in order to protect the 600 women and children in Bulawayo. The defenses were strong, 
and could not easily be cracked by the Indabelli. However, the settlers could still be starved out in a long siege. By early April, Bulawayo was surrounded on three sides by literally tens of thousands of angry, battle-hardened Indabelli warriors armed with modern rifles. However, the African forces were operating in large but independent groupings, and that's key, without the guiding hand of overall leadership. It is probably for this reason that the main road connecting Bulawayo to the southwest and consequent resupply from South Africa was not cut off. The Europeans were able to resupply, and as long as the road to South Africa remained open, the siege had little chance of working. And the settlers were working around the clock to better their situation. All able-bodied males were organized into fighting units. Almost a thousand European men suddenly found themselves exchanging their farming tools and mining pickaxes for rifles and machine guns. Part of these men were organized into a cavalry unit, which began making sporadic raids on the Indabelli, keeping the enemy off his balance. At this point, the Indabelli were on a looting spree, and killing became secondary. Together with the Shona, they ultimately destroyed 1,500 acres of crops, 150 colonial farms, 21,000 fruit trees, and stole or killed 40,000 head of cattle. Meanwhile, back in Salisbury, Rhodes was working like the devil to raise a volunteer force in order to put down the rebellion. Hundreds of volunteers joined, but it still wasn't enough to stop the tens of thousands of warriors who were single-handedly destroying everything Rhodes had tried to build in Rhodesia for the past decade. In the end, Rhodes was able to organize 800 men into the aptly named Matabele Relief Force. It took more than a month for these men to fight their way across the 272 miles from Salisbury to Bulawayo. And during the month of April, the 800 European volunteers never stopped working trying to keep the enemy off balance. Four times the horsemen rode out to dislodge one of the largest bands of Africans in the area, and four times they were repulsed. Then, on April 28th, 200 men made yet another attempt to dislodge the Indabeli. This time they made it across a river that the voodoo priests had said the settlers would never cross. When the Indabeli saw the Europeans come across the river, their hearts fell and they finally gave way. The Indabeli knew surrounded Bulawayo was coming loose. During the month of May, both sides consolidated their positions, but this only worked to the advantage of the Europeans because it nullified one of the key advantages of the African rebels, the element of surprise. There would be no more random acts of death. No more isolated farms and buildings to attack. Now there were only stoutly built fortresses and ever-increasing European soldiers to deal with. The scales were tipping every day in the direction of the settlers. On June 1st, a large portion of Indabeli were dislodged from Bulawayo, and now Rhodes was finally able to combine his forces with the local Bulawayo troops. His reinforcements had finally made it. Suddenly, overnight, there were thousands more European troopers in the area, many of them experienced soldiers, by the way. 2,000 men in the immediate area with a further 1,000 in reserve. On June 6th, a small column of European horsemen were patrolling the Nguza River when they suddenly ran into a massive body of Indabelli troops. The two sides were so close to one another, they were like two words suddenly combined into one compound word. Can and not thrust together into cannot. Immediately, the settlers called for reinforcements, who turned the tide of the battle. 300 elite Indabelli warriors fell in this engagement, but they were not normal troops. These were the cream of the Indabelli army. African morale plummeted, and from that day forward, the Indabelli never took the offensive against the Europeans again. Richard Baker describes the state of the war when something unthinkable happened. The Shona suddenly rose in rebellion on June 18th. Quote, Something of an impasse had been reached. The Indabelli and their allies now had no prospect of winning the war or ejecting the Europeans. The most they could hope for was a prolonged defensive campaign. Now, the European forces were faced with less daunting problems, but their position, too, was far from satisfactory. It was not going to be at all easy to reduce the rebels to submission in this strange, desolate terrain to which they had withdrawn, a world of huge granite copies, giant boulders, and a maze of caves and crevices which offered limitless opportunities for resistance. In time, no doubt, they could be starved out, but to the company, time was vital. 
At this moment, something happened which no European had expected in his worst nightmare. The Shona tribes broke out in revolt during the third week in June. The massacres of the Matabili land were reenacted in Mashona land. Once again, the outlying settlers were slaughtered. About 120 Europeans, including women and children, perished in the first few days of the second Shona tribe-based rebellion. Once again, there was a wave of Europeans receding from the outlying districts, which flooded back into the safety of fortified Salisbury. Disorganized armed bands of Shona were everywhere, killing everyone in Mashona land who was prone to sunburn. Patrols were dispatched to bring every European back into the safety of the fortified city. One of these patrols became a legend in Rhodesian folklore. It was called the Mazo Patrol. Now, at a mining outpost called Alice, there were 16 Europeans, including three women, cut off and alone. And one of the men who was cut off there was a telegrapher named J.L. Blackston, a shy, glasses-wearing, bookish man surrounded by a community of hard frontiersmen who were almost all either devoted to mammon or to Bacchus, money or pleasure. It was this mild-mannered librarian who was forced to face down certain death by running to the telegraph office in order to transmit a Mayday message to Salisbury. No one else could work the machine. It was him or no one, and besides, if he didn't go, he would die anyway. At least this way, he can maybe save the women and bring some wrath down on his attackers. A novelist remembers Blackston's last moments like this, quote, Blackston gripped the handle of the mine door so hard his fist blanched. He closed his eyes, remembering the comforting fire of his father's study half a world away in Wheatley, England. Why had he come to this far-flung place in the middle of nowhere? All his classical education, his perfection of coiny Greek, and his laborious translations of Homer, the countless books he had read, the seemingly endless compositions he had written throughout his formal education, all of it to end up at the very edge of a world map marked British Empire. All that education wasted. Within 20 minutes, he'd be dead, probably dismembered, perchance eaten, his brain's gray matter embedded with Homer, transmutated into dung and fed to worms, the image of God become food for the dust. Why did he come here? Because he was J.L. Blackston, quiet, introverted, he had no strings to pull, no wealthy friends to secure him a job, and all the good telegraph officer jobs in Notting Hill and Oxford back in England were solidly taken. There was no other place for him. Oh, damn myself, he thought as he stood inside the penultimate door he would ever open. If only I had advanced myself, elbowed my way into professor's offices. If only I had spoken up more, worked harder, I might have avoided the imminent threat of cannibalism. But I didn't. While the other men won cricket trophies and trophy wives and trophy jobs, I was content to work night shift in the far-flung telegraph offices of a haphazard empire. I preferred it that way. Alone with my books, oil burning throughout the night, the hot coffee, and the warm pot-bellied stove, my only companions, daydreaming a fool. Kune Virunga! Iva Vimungandai! He heard the screaming from outside the mineshaft door. It was Shona, a strange tongue to hear while being deconstructed in the African sun. It was so utterly alien. Blackston would have preferred to be killed by a Spaniard. At least then he could understand something of the language, like being killed by a cousin, a perverted, injurious cousin, but still a piece of home nonetheless. But Shona, this language was like being killed by an inhabitant of the moon itself. That's when T.J. Rutledge volunteered to run with Blackston. Follow me, were the last words Blackston ever spoke. He threw the door open, and the sun burst through its cavity in a blinding tsunami of light. Blackston winced as he started running. He could hear the Africans all around him screaming, Marungo Pano Pano! Jesus, what were they saying? Suddenly Blackston was an Olympic sprinter. He had never run so hard in his life. He ran the way cheating women run to their lying lovers, overwhelmed with passion and childlike lust, oblivious to the mundane things around them. If Blackston and Rutledge were eagles, their wings would have been folded back and their bodies diving at a prey. They ran the full mile in five minutes, the Shona motivating them with javelins and wide-eyed deep bass screams, Marungo! Marungo! And while Blackston desperately worked the telegraph machine, his tremulous hand tapping at it like an alcoholic going through withdrawals, Blackston suddenly realized there was something he understood behind, within, and underneath the strange alien Shona language. He recognized the emotion of anger and hatred mixed together. This was the true universal language. There is a common 
in humanity after all. Laughter and bitterness. Only the strong chords make a discernible melody in the vocal chords of our most distant human cousins. But the universality is there. Finally, Blackiston finished the telegram. The Shona were at the door now. Rutledge was screaming something unintelligible. His screeching tenor lost in the cacophonous bass of the Shona behind the door. Marungo! Marungo! Then there was an evil sound. A sound that sent lightning pulsing down Blackston's nerve endings, convulsing into his brainstem. A sound like a diver's oxygen tank dying at the bottom of an ocean. A sound like the groans of an RPG-shot helicopter as the spinning earth comes sprinting up to you. A sound that sends blood careening through your capillaries, and your breath itself starts choking you. You're tangibly heavy with worry. It was the door caving in while Rootledge was perforated with what? What was it? Five, six different spears at once? A second ago, he was a screaming Englishman. Now he was a bleeding, terror-choking pin cushion. Blackston lunged from his wooden office chair and emptied his revolver cylinder in the hopping humanity flooding through the door. His eyes barely registered what he was seeing. Then the spears came, and the dismemberment, and the Shona got to see what a brain suffused in Shakespeare and Virgil looked like. It didn't look special. It looked like all the others, but Blackston's telegram made it through, and various European patrols converged on Alice Mine. They worked death into the besieging Shona, and twelve of Blackston's fellow settlers, including three women, were saved by him. Many of the Shona were inspired by a spirit named Kajubi, who spoke through the Shona king's son-in-law. Kajubi promised his followers invincibility, and the Shona believed it. Kajubi was joined by a female spirit medium named Nahanda. With the power of their warrior ancestors, the Shona would drive out the Europeans in a decisive chimeringa, or struggle. Fanatical voodoo was now unleashed in the service of the Shona rebellion. And the two voodoo mediums were eventually captured. They were tried and hung, which took most of the fight out of the Shona rebels. That's a major problem for religious leaders who promise their followers invulnerability when they themselves are executed. When they are executed, the religion tends to lose steam. Don't laugh. The same thing happened to American Mormons when the prophet Joseph Smith didn't foresee his own bank's failure. Many of his followers began to doubt him. My point is this. Dashed religious hopes from messianic figures are nothing new in the history of mankind. Slowly, over a period of weeks, Shona resistance was crushed in various bloody mopping-up operations. Finally, one of the chief Shona leaders, King Makoni, offered to surrender in exchange for amnesty but no amnesty was given. He had resisted for far too long. There was only one way the war would end for Maconi, and that was at the bottom of a six-feet-deep grave. Finally, in late August, Maconi was captured, taken into custody, and summarily tried and shot on the perimeter of his own crawl. After that, the remaining Shona who continued to resist were slowly hunted down and crushed over a period of a year. This was typically achieved by dynamiting the warrens of caves and rock shelters where the rebels remained hidden. This type of warfare cost thousands of Shona lives. We don't know the exact number. No one does. No one ever will. But in the end, the Shona uprising was finally crushed. Of course, when the Shona rose in bloody rebellion, the military leaders of the European expedition against the Indibeli were alarmed by the second rebellion breaking out in their rear. But after their decisive defeat of the Indibeli at the Nguza River, General Frederick Carrington, the military commander of the settler column chasing down the largest grouping of Indibeli rebels, decided to continue his attack and utterly break the Indibeli resistance before turning to deal with the Shona threat. Accordingly, Carrington sent mounted men against the main Indibeli stronghold at Tabazika Mambo. By July 3rd, the 750 soldiers were just 20 miles from Taba. That's when a scout reported the Indibeli were mustering their strength to attack the European column before it reached the Indibeli headquarters. But Carrington did the unexpected. He pushed his men through a grueling night march and attacked Tabazika Mambo at dawn. The Indibeli were unprepared for the sudden arrival of Rhodes and his army, and Rhodes personally participated in the battle armed with just a whip. He rode up and down the battlefront exhorting his men to fight heedless of his own safety. The battle took place on July 5th and lasted from 6 in the morning to noon. By the end of it, 100 Indibeli lay dead while 9 Europeans were likewise killed. The remaining Indibeli fled to Matapos, where the last remnants of the proud Indibeli hold up to await the arrival of the settlers and to kill as many Europeans as they could. The African tribesmen 
couldn't have picked a better place to hole up and extract massive casualties from the Europeans, not to mention the excessive costs in money each day of the war inflicted on Rhodes and his company. Matapos was a region of tumbling hills and rocky outcrops ideal for a long-term defense, clearing it would be a bloodbath and cost untold thousands of pounds more. Carrington dutifully went into the Indebelli natural fortress of Matapos. Over and over again, he fought the Indebelli, and over and over again, there was no decisive victory over the Africans. War dragged on. There were few European casualties, but then again, there were few Indebelli casualties either. After a few weeks of this, Carrington was transformed into a second Sherman and decided to implement scorched earth tactics in his campaign against the Indebelli. He unleashed his troops across the rolling hills of Matabili land, destroying all cattle, crops, and grain reserves, determined to enlist the Indebelli stomachs in his campaign against them. Perhaps their intestines were less proud than their backbones. Predictably, after a few weeks of seeing everything they valued in this world destroyed, Carrington's scorched earth policy reaped results. Acting on his own, Rhodes sent a trusted African scout to establish personal contact with the Indabelli leadership. The Indabelli were impressed with Rhodes' request to establish negotiations with himself personally, man to man. Everyone in Africa, including the Indabelli, knew Rhodes was the most powerful man on the continent. And his willingness to enter into direct, face-to-face negotiations with the Indebelli impressed the remaining tribal leaders greatly. And the negotiation came on August 21st. A modern historian describes the scene, quote, Rhodes and his small party of five men arrived first and waited in the shade of a tree until a group of Indebelli generals cautiously stepped down from the surrounding hills carrying a white flag. The procession was watched by thousands of whispering tribesmen lining the surrounding hills. As the party slowly descended, Rhodes turned and remarked to a companion, This is very exciting. This is one of the incidents in life that make it worth living. Forty-four African generals gathered in a circle around Rhodes, who sat on a large termite mound. An elderly warrior leader of the Indebelli name, Samambulana, keeper of the nation's history, stepped forward and told the whole history of his people from their original birth in the womb of the Zulu nation to their conquest of the Shona and Rhodes' conquest of them. The old general spoke of the depredations the Indibili had encountered, the death of cattle, the loss of land. He was a proud man and warrior, and he spoke with Rhodes as an equal. His people weren't just some Africans. They were sons of thunder, children of great Zulu warriors. Rhodes heard the man out but always guided the conversation away from blame in the past and towards the future in peace. After just a few hours of conversation, the old man and Rhodes made peace. The Indebelli in principle accepted Rhodes as an overlord, but they wanted to make sure that food would be imported so they would not starve, and they wanted the hated native police to be removed, end quote. After three days of negotiations, Rhodes agreed to a general amnesty, excepting for Indebelli who had murdered women, children, and surrendered Europeans. For three days, the two sides worked out a way to live together without any killing. And so, Sambulana saved tens of thousands of his people from certain death and bleak starvation. Sambulana had carved out peace for his people, a humbling peace, but a peace that would save lives and lead to the further strengthening of the Indebelli nation by hundreds of thousands of extra souls. In contrast to someone educated like Hitler, who doomed the German nation to a protracted war where tens of millions were killed and raped, including nine million Germans. In the end, Hitler lost anyway, as any competent officer could have told him he would do after the Battle of Kursk. Now I ask you, which man cared more for his people, Sambalana or Hitler? We should remember and honor the men who make a dismal, humbling peace but save a nation. Sambalana deserves our honor. And so peace came with the acquiescence of the Indebelli and the literal dynamiting of the Shona people. There would be no major uprising for 70 years. The Indebelli gained peace, and they thought they had gained their homes as well, but they were mistaken. Most of their homes were now owned by absentee European landowners who weren't interested in turning their easy profits over to the people they had just defeated in warfare. However, Rhodes was shrewd enough to make sure that no rentals would be charged to the Indebelli for two years. And when the two years were up, most of the Indebelli found themselves forced to pay the infamous hut tax, either a property tax or a rental fee, that forced them to seek work in the European-linked economy. This is how the vast majority of Zimbabweans entered the modern world through petty, coerced taxation. 
I'll let Peter Baxter describe the ultimate outcome of the rebellion for the Africans. Quote, By the time the ugly fact of Indebelli debt was revealed, it was too late to protest, for Rhodes had long since left the territory. In his wake, the African man was pushed into obscurity, where he would remain for almost a century. Rhodes did try to enforce fair laws for the Indebelli, but his efforts lasted only as long as he lived. The smaller personalities that remained behind were unable to act in a similar fashion, and so the Matabili Rebellion confirmed the European conquest of Rhodesia, and by the accepted rules of conquest, the Europeans now owned title to the entire country. Now that the country was pacified, more settlers came. The railroad was expanded to Bulawayo, which consequently enabled the rapid call-up of troops at a moment's notice. The Indebelli and the Shona were now broken peoples. The violence of the uprisings left an angry bitterness in the European community, and an attitude of antagonism replaced the indifference of the past. When the African was regarded as primitive, but at least useful, now it was clear that the African could not be trusted, and he was not. End quote. For the next 70 years, there was no war in the new state of Rhodesia, only development. Through World War I and World War II, where huge numbers of Rhodesian men in proportion to their small population served in the Allied war effort. So many Rhodesians served Britain in World War II that her future independence was guaranteed by the British government under the 1940s political system, which means under a discriminatory system of settler rule. But after the war, the West was repulsed by the brutal racism of Hitler, and a new morality, similar to what McPherson calls a revolution, swept the leaders of the Western world. Previous indiscretions were no longer winked at. New nations were constantly springing into being. Britain, exhausted in her titanic struggle with Germany, turned her back on her colonies and her own kinsmen in southern Africa. Once again, war was in the air. But that's next month's podcast. All right, that's another one of the books for me. I want to thank everyone who shares the show on social media, and I especially want to thank everyone who sends a few dollars our way. I'm really very truly thankful. I really am. Remember to join us next month as we recount the bloody history of the Rhodesian Bush War. It's a very unique and intriguing war, sort of like a colonial Vietnam, complete with bush warfare, urban terrorism, and civilian casualties. You won't want to miss it. And until next month, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. And I can tell you, this month, I need this. Oh my lord, it's going to be a good beer. Pop one with me.